Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. Creeping Fingers by Loretta Burrow I was so dead tired that the snow swirling about my face and the cold wind blowing in chill gusts down the side streets were the only things that kept me from falling asleep on my feet. Had it not been for the storm, I could have cheerfully leaned against a wall and closed my eyes, but its fierce violence drove me onward through the snow drifting high, and the fierce blasts of the Midwestern blizzard. I kept saying to myself, Not much farther now, and then a bath and bed, but it was queer how the few blocks from the station to the hotel stretched themselves. An Olympic runner at the end of a long race could not have been more tired than I, when at last I crawled through the revolving doors into the hot, glaring warmth of the foyer of the Hoffman House, Benton's Hotel. I wanted only one thing, room and bath, and said as much to the drowsy night clerk, stodgily on duty at the desk. Room and bath, sir? he said, conserving his words with the economy of the weary. Frayed not. What do you mean, frayed not? I demanded. Convention here at Benton. No room. No room? Well, where the devil do you expect me to sleep? In the station? I've been travelling two days and nights, and a bath and room I will have. I was angry, with the sudden heat of the worn-out. We stood at an impasse, I glaring heatedly at the clerk, and he staring dazedly at me, quite unable in his experience to find any solution for the problem. What's this, Kennedy? Being insolent to a guest? A large, robust gentleman stood at my elbow. The clerk shuffled into an alert attitude. No, sir. Mr. Hardy, this gentleman wants a room and bath, and I was telling him on account of the convention we haven't any. You see, I explained, I'm dog-tired. I've been on the road for weeks. I've just made a long sleeper jump, and I want a room and bath. This is the only decent hotel in town, so I came here. I see, sir. The manager was very deferential. Well, we'll see if we can't possibly fix you up. Are all the rooms occupied? he asked, turning to the clerk. Yes, Mr. Hardy. Hmm, this convention. Well, how about 317? That's empty, of course. Hmm. Well, I said, breaking in as the prospect of a haven began to show through the murk. If 317's unoccupied, I shall take it. The manager stood there a moment saying nothing. You see, he began, 317's not occupied much. People complain of the location or something. They say it's too cold. I shouldn't advise you to take the room, sir. People don't like it. However, it is the only unoccupied one tonight. It has a bath attached. I don't care anything about the location. If there isn't any objection, I shall take it, particularly since it has a bath attached. Well, perhaps I should suggest, if you took just the room and didn't use the bath? The bath isn't opened much. It's rather damp. People don't like it. I stood staring at him, wondering what could ail this manager who could find so few good points about his rooms. He had been anxious enough to find a place for me before, but I could not but pause to wonder about his vagaries. With all its drawbacks, real or imaginary, 317 had begun to appear to me a haven of rest. I shall take it, damp, bad location, too chilly, everything, with bath attached. 
The manager stood there a moment longer, then, with a shrug, said, "'Certainly, sir,' and called, "'Front!' The boy took my bags, which by now I thought had begun to wear through the muscles of my shoulders, and led me to a gusty elevator that creaked its way upward for two stories, then along hot and carpeted corridors, past closed doors through which I could hear blasts of merry-making from the convention, into a long and narrow passage, remote and quiet, and noticeably chill and draughty. He paused before a door at one end of the corridor, and began to fumble with the key in the lock. I stood beside him, noticing the quiet of the passage, as compared with the robust noise of the other corridors. "'Very quiet here, isn't it?' I said. "'Yes, sir,' the boy looked up. "'You see, this is the only bedroom on the gallery. The others—' He gestured to other dark brown doors opening out on the worn red-carpeted hall. "'Are just storerooms for odds and ends, and linen, and things like that. This room ain't used much. It, it ain't used at all, that is to say. Not lately, that is. It's sort of damp and chilly, people say. Damp and chilly? Why should it be damp and chilly? This isn't the seashore. I, I don't know, sir. The boy had the key in the lock, and the door opened. A gust of swamp-like chill rushed out to meet us, as palpable as a rush of wind. Shut the windows in here, I said, advancing into the room behind him. It's damned cold. Th they're shut, sir, he muttered slipping the electric switch, and letting a flood of chill-white glare over the room. I went over to the flaky radiator immediately, and bent to turn on the heat. The steam immediately hissed through the pipes loudly. "'It's funny,' I said, looking at the boy who stood near the door. "'This room's as cold as the inside of a tomb.' "'Yes, sir. People complain about it, and don't stay.' "'Well, I don't care.' I looked about me once more. All I want is a bath and a bed to sleep in. Yes, sir. I handed him his tip, and he hurried out, his footsteps beating a rapid retreat down the corridor, toward warmth, I fancied. The cheerless room was still as cold as the inside of a refrigerator car, although the heat was now dancing through the pipes and quivering above the radiator. It'll have to warm up soon, I said to myself, and began to take off my clothes. When I had got halfway undressed to the tune of the noisy pipes and the battering of the wind and the sleet, I went to the bathroom to turn on the hot water for my bath. When I entered the room, I was startled. It was almost as large as an old-fashioned kitchen. It was cold and damp and dark, and the huge old tub had high sides. It looked like one of those old monstrosities that had been current in the early day of plumbing— and the whole room had the air of being out of place. It was hideous and cheerless. I shivered, and went back into the cold bedroom, well understanding the state of mind that could prompt people to give up the barren, unpleasant room. I sat on the edge of the bed, half awake, and listened to the monotonous sound of the bath filling. It was the only noise I could hear, although I listened carefully. No sound of distant revelry reached me, no noises from the street. I got up and moved to the window, pulling aside the skimpy curtain. I looked down upon a cheerless row of empty stables around a dark alley, utterly lonely and abandoned-looking, under the faint light of a feeble arc. Over everything the snow eddied about in drifting gusts. "'God!' I said. "'What a prospect! 
That and the cold combined must have discouraged the tenants. I turned back into the room, wondering why a hotel could be such an incredibly dreary place, particularly a country hotel. After a while, when the bath began to sound as if it were full, I picked up my fresh pyjamas and opened the bathroom door. I stared a moment, gasped, and pulled on the electric light switch. The light from the high white globe streaked out over the bare room, and the deep shadow cast by the basin into the bottom of the tub, filled with green water swirling and steaming, sending up hot smoke into the cold air. I gazed a long moment into the bottom of the tub, and laid my pyjamas over the side of the stool, shivering and feeling decidedly ill, for, in that long moment before I had switched on the light, I had fancied I had seen someone lying supine in the bottom of the tub. I went over to it, and stared down into its depths, between the chill, greyish-looking marble sides to the bottom, where the hot water was steaming and gurgling and bubbling, as the cascade from the pipe fell fountain-like downward. It was empty. The faint shadow that I stooped down to touch was my own, cast by the ceiling light, like a small sun that hung obliquely above my head. I shivered a bit in the damp air. Despite the hot vapour of the steam that was now filling the room, the air was still chill and faintly redolent of the earth, the odour of a necropolis in the rain. I looked about me, and wondered where the odour could be coming from, and what made these two rooms so cheerless and repulsive, and, I fancied, so malignant. And what was it I fancied I had seen prostrate in the bottom of the tub? I went back to the doorway, and stared again into the room at the tub, after switching off the light. The little oblong of yellow light from the bedroom streamed in upon the greyish marble of the floor, and my shadow stood before me, long and inquiring, with distorted head turned questioningly toward the high bulk in the corner of the room. But that was all. There was nothing lying, long and horribly supine and limp, in the bottom of the high white tub. I granted, whether in satisfaction or in annoyance at myself, I could not tell, turned on the light, slipped off my bathrobe, and stood testing the heat of the water with my finger. I let a little cold water out of the faucet, and then got into the tub. I had realised how high the thing was when I stood looking at it, but when I lay down in it, the white side seemed to come suddenly together over my head, and I sat up, startled. The depth of it was extraordinary, and I decided that it must certainly have originated in some bygone age of plumbing, for such monstrosities were not tolerated today. Sitting upright as I was, the top of the tub was on a level with my eyes, and lying down I could see nothing but its sides, and the high, cold-looking globe of the ceiling light, which shed its sickly glow over the room. But I was tired, worn out, and the water that gurgled loudly from the pipes in the silence was hot and soothing to my weary body and fatigued nerves. Hideous though the room was, hard the storm that banged at the window, and cold and repulsive the tub, at least I could build for myself, with hot water and soap, a little haven against the harshness of my surroundings. I lay down in the bottom, and again experienced the sudden sensation that the sides were closing around me. But this time I did not sit up, for I was growing warm, and sleep, like a hot blanket, was closing around my nerves and brain. 
I lay still, and may have dozed, thinking of home and the happy fact that I would soon be there. Then, slowly, I began to grow conscious again, dully, sleepily, with my brain functioning as if in a dream. I grew aware of the fact, as if beneath a layer of wool that was gently numbing my faculties, that somewhere near at hand a door had very softly closed. I lay there a while, softly mulling it over, drawing from it no meaning, foggily arguing with myself, wondering. One of the servants, perhaps, had closed a door along the corridor. No, it had sounded nearer than that, much nearer. I didn't know. I, I couldn't bother. I was growing drowsy again, sinking easily along pleasant paths down to a blissful know-nothingness, when a voice within my brain shouted violently, "'Wake up! Save yourself!' My eyes jerked open as if by cords that had suddenly contracted, and the sweat of sudden fright stood out on my forehead. Convulsively, every muscle in my body jerked and stiffened, and my hands closed into fists. What was it, that sudden voice that shocked me into alertness? What was it that had startled me out of the mists of weariness and sleep? What was there to be afraid of? I stared about me, and sat up. Nothing was changed in the room. Nothing was out of order. The cheerless, cracked sink still stood in the corner, and one of its taps still drearily dripped. Over the peeling yellow stool were thrown my clean pyjamas and a towel, and my toothbrush and the red tube of paste still lay upon the basin. Whence, then, came that extraordinary impression that something was different? Nothing was different. The air was still as funereally cold, the storm still sucked about the windows, and yet change there was, something a change that, subconsciously, I did not like. I stared at the sides of the tub, turned away, then violently turned back. What were they, those pools of mist? On a level with my eyes, upon the chill surface of the marble edge, were five little circles of mist, fluctuating, moving, and ominous. I couldn't understand them, and I stared again. Five pools of mist spaced unevenly apart, four close together, and one a little distance of a few inches away from the others. Suddenly they lifted and dissolved away. Then again they reappeared, a little nearer to me, at a different place. Stupidly I put out my hand and laid it on the side of the marble to brace myself, lifted it off again, and stared at the impression of five circles of rapidly dissolving mist that it had left. What was it, then, whose five fingers made those little pools of mist, just like the fading spots left by my fingers? What was it, then, that had its hand on the side of the tub? I crowded back against the far wall, and watched that marble expanse where the five imprints moved. An instant, and suddenly, with a pounce, the impression of five fingers was not alone. A foot away, and as clearly and distinctly as warm fingers print on ice, the imprint of another hand stood out, and immediately I became conscious of the change in the room that had bothered me before. I looked breathlessly toward the door, and saw, instead of the lamp with its circle of light on the bedroom table, only the closed dark brown panels of the bathroom door. It was shut, and I had left it open. 
What then was it that had come through the door, softly shutting it behind it, when I was half asleep? What then was it that was shut up with me in the room, and had its invisible hands on the side of the tub? I looked at the pools of mist, not calmly, but with a choking sensation that I had become tangled in a web of madness, that it was a horrible nightmare, and could not last. I could not move. My starting eyes were fixed on those melting and moving impressions on the marble. Another moment, and I could find my voice and cry out, but not now. Suddenly I could almost see the marble spurned. The fingerprints were gone. Malignantly, the hands were free. Something that I could not see was coming at me over the side of the tub. I turned my head away, and cried out in a voice that terror lent power to. I felt myself slipping darkly into the water, sensation ebbing away into a chill blackness that was quiet and cold, and burned with light that dashed across darkness. Now, a voice was speaking very far away. When he wakes up, give him something very light, Miss Daly. Nothing heavy, not even if he asks for it. And remember, absolutely no conversation. If he wants to talk, if he starts asking questions, simply refuse to speak to him. I'll be in first thing in the morning. The voices moved away, and I opened my eyes painfully. I was warmly heaped with blankets, and the fresh odour of clean wool filled the room. The place was unfamiliar and warm, and a spoon stood in a glass on the table, and beside it a bottle. I opened my mouth to call, and found I could not. My throat was exceedingly raw, and I felt as if I had been smothered in water, but I lay there, my eyes on the bright glow of the unfamiliar lamp, and my brain idly tracing the pattern on its shade. I knew there were things I should be thinking of, puzzling over, but with every muscle aching and my whole body and brain a raw torture, I wanted only to sleep. The door opened, and the nurse came in, brisk, pleasant, bright-faced. Awake, are you? How do you feel? Sick, I groaned. What's this all about, anyhow? Where am I? Never mind. She busied herself with the peculiar industriousness which is the characteristic of nurses. You're to rest and sleep, and that's absolutely all. Now I'll get you some tea and toast. She was gone, and when she came back with the food, I ate it, and went to sleep soon after. A week later I was sitting in the office of the manager of the Hoffman House, a glass at my side, and a cigar between my lips, and listening. "'Well,' he began rather awkwardly, his eyes on the rug beneath his feet, "'I'm awfully sorry about this matter, Mr. Kent. I know it's been a terrible experience for you.' I nodded, and before my eyes rose the picture of that damp, chill room, the wisps of steam from the bath curling up into the dank air, and the high walls of the great tub rising about me, and shutting out everything except the frozen-looking globe of the light. And again I seemed to hear a door close softly, and again I seemed to stare at changing pools of mist moving on marble surface. I shuddered and lifted the full glass to my lips. I could never forget that experience. A week's trying had only dimmed the first raw horror a little. Now— I said, setting down the glass suddenly. I want to hear an explanation. I have been put off for a week, and the whole thing haunts me. Please tell me what it means. I don't know that I 
should tell you. Perhaps the whole thing might better be forgotten. Of course, you know the rooms are being dismantled, and will be used again only for storage?" I nodded. I had heard the sounds of hammering and moving going on near me for several days, and I had asked the nurse what they were doing. I was glad they were breaking up the rooms. At least they would no longer have a concrete existence. He took his gaze from the carpet, and looked at me. This whole thing happened before I became manager of the hotel, so I had no personal knowledge of the matter. Anyhow, well, you want to hear what happened the night you were in there?" He gestured toward the ceiling, and I knew he referred to my unfortunate occupancy of 317 and Bath. "'Yes,' I said, and he went on. That night, everything was going on quite as usual, when I happened to stroll down the corridor on which 317 was situated. He paused, and seemed to shiver. I was going to check up on the housekeeper's tally of the linen, which hadn't quite suited me, and I noticed how infernally damp the passage was. This was about half-past eleven, you know, about an hour after you'd gone up to the room. I went into the storeroom, and was taking stock of the linen in the closets and so forth, when I heard you yell. Well, he paused, and took a sip from his glass. I ran out to the corridor. I knew where it came from, of course called for help at the top of my voice, and then tried to get the door open. In a minute, there was a crowd of bellboys and guests around me, and altogether we broke down the door. Well, you weren't in the bedroom, so we went to the bathroom door. It wasn't locked, because it hadn't any key, you know, but we couldn't open it. And all the time we could hear you inside, drowning. We didn't waste any time, as you can imagine. We broke the door down at last, and got you out just in time. The doctor said a little more immersion would have finished you. I had you brought to the best room in the hotel, got a doctor and nurse, and here you are." He looked up and smiled, and I realized that the experience was one that the manager of the Hoffman House would not forget very quickly. Standing in that damp, cold corridor alone, and hearing me cry for help in the accents of insane fright, was something that would tend to remain in a man's memory. "'Yes,' I said. Here I am, a little the worse for wear, and very bewildered. I told him my story, from my first impressions of the rooms, to my last moment when I felt myself sinking into the deep water. When I finished, he nodded very quietly. I thought it was something like that. The rooms have a vile reputation. It's just as well they're being broken up. I'll tell their story, and perhaps it will explain things a little. I don't know. Anyhow— he took another long drink from the glass at his elbow, and resumed. Three seventeen was taken three years and a week ago, to be exact, by two men, an old man very feeble, and a much younger man, uncle and nephew they were. Anyhow, that night the young man drowned his uncle in the bathtub, and disappeared. He was tracked down later, and hung. I shivered. The rooms had been the scene of murder then. No wonder their air of being consecrated to evil. The door, that had been shut so strangely on the night that I was there, had been shut those years before by the murderer. Just so had he crept in, hidden by the high sides of the tub. Then, when the old man lay unsuspecting, laid his hands on the side of the marble, and a moment later—it must have been easy to do, considering the age of the victim and the youth and strength of the murderer— 
to push him beneath the water and hold him there until his last struggles were over. I shivered at the ugly picture and the strange closeness of my escape. That's not all, the manager went on. The next year it didn't happen to be occupied on the 15th. The year after that, last year, it was occupied, and a man was found drowned in the tub the next morning, accidentally, we thought, of course, and the night you were there was the third anniversary. You see, I wasn't manager at the time all these things happened, and I didn't have facts at first hand, or I would have thought twice about letting you take the room. But you were so insistent, so I— Anyhow, I've had one coincidence too many, so the rooms are being torn down and won't be used for living purposes any more. A damn good thing, I said, picking up my hat from the table and lifting my suitcase. And as he turned to go with me to the door, I realized unhappily that never again would I see a bathtub without a psychic shudder staring at the roots of my hair, and that of all the numbers and all the possible combinations of numbers in the world, 317 was the one I would never be able to forget. <laughs>